We'll hear argument now on number 98-1696, the United States versus Roy Lee Johnson. Ms. McDowell. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns when a federal criminal defendant's term of supervised release begins. The unambiguous text of 18 U.S.C. 3624E provides the answer. That section states that a defendant's term of supervised release commences on the day he is released from imprisonment. It further states that a term of supervised release does not run during any period in which the defendant is imprisoned, except for a period of less than 30 days. Thus, until a defendant is actually released from prison, his supervised release does not begin. The statute provides no... Suppose suppose that you don't have the situation uh, which existed here where he was... uh he was wrongfully convicted and serving a term on a wrongful conviction. But suppose that uh, just in violation of his rights, the prison keeps him in for three years after his term of proper conviction had actually expired. You think we'd be obliged to uh, have him serve his term of three years supervised release after those three years of, of wrongful imprisonment have already occurred? Yes, Your Honor. He would have no remedy that's based on his supervised release term that would be automatic. Well, what, he could, what? however, move under Section 3583 for a reduction in his term of supervised release. Which would be discretionary. With, uh, that would be with, discretionary, well, yes. I, it doesn't seem to me this ought to be discretionary. Uh, there why, would, why can't we interpret the words, uh, does not run during any period in which the person is imprisoned in connection with a conviction? Why can't we interpret that to mean reasonably properly imprisoned in connection with a conviction? Well, that would still be inconsistent with the earlier sentence in that same provision that says the term of supervised release commences on the day the person is released from imprisonment. That seems to contemplate actual release, not could have been, should have been, or would have been released. What, what is, is there a statute that governs the, uh, the service of consecutive sentences? Uh, Yes, there is. There's a statute that provides that for administrative purposes, all sentences will be aggregated. That's Section um, 3584, I believe. And, and, and all sentences shall be aggregated? What that has the effect of uh, if one sentence happens to be vacated, a defendant will automatically receive uh, credit against a subsequent consecutive sentence. Suppose, suppose the statute didn't read that, and, and suppose... Uh, that a person is serving consecutive sentences under a provision either in the statute or in the, in the judicial sentence, which says his, uh, his uh, time for the second conviction shall not begin to run until the service of his time for the first conviction has expired, all right? And then it turns out that the first conviction was improper, and he served five years in prison wrongfully you'd still put him in for the next five? Um, we would still require him to serve a term of supervised release if there was I'm still a term of supervised, supervised release. I'm talking about a second conviction. He's serving consecutive terms. Uh, the first court- term is invalidated. They're both five-year ter- five mm-hmm. terms. The first term is wrong. He shouldn't have been there mm-hmm. on that first term. He served five years. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, sorry for that mistake, but uh, here's the second term for five years. We want you to serve that now. There could conceivably be a due process problem with that. The courts haven't addressed that particular issue, uh, perhaps because the United States government has uh, this aggregation provision and, and states have similar provisions as a result of statute or court decision. 
uh, the due process question has come up typically in the um, context of whether a vacated state sentence has to be credited against a federal sentence still to be served or vice versa. And the courts have held there's no due process problem in those circumstances because of the dual sovereignty of right. uh, this could conceivably be a different situation. But if it were the same sovereign, there might be a due process problem. <laughs> there could conceivably be. Why might there not be a due process problem where the second sentence is a sentence to supervised release? Because supervised release serves different purposes than a term of imprisonment. It's supposed to uh, assist the defendant's transition into society and to protect the community. But you're not — I mean, it, it may serve different purposes, but you're not entitled to, to — uh, force someone to undergo it except as punishment for a crime, right? That's true, but in this case, and in the case I can see we're talking about, uh, the defendant still has a valid term of supervised release uh, attached to a valid conviction. We wouldn't, of course, insist that a defendant serve but a term of supervised you, release. You say Otherwise. there may be a due process problem in, a, in, in forcing him to serve the second conviction. Why wouldn't there be a due process problem in forcing him to serve the supervised release that is a punishment for the second conviction? It may serve re rehabilitative purposes as well, but it's a punishment. It and may if there be. is a due process problem, why shouldn't we strain to uh, interpret this statute in order to avoid the due process problem? Well, the only conceivable due process problem would be in the context of two terms of imprisonment. We conceive that since the um, uh, purposes of supervised release are so different and because they are so much less intrusive on a defendant and because the defendant has an opportunity to get out of the term of supervised release after one year based on his behavior in the interest of justice. That it's At not the discretion the of the court. Yeah. At the discretion That's of the great. court. Now, if, if a conviction were set aside, it wouldn't just be the prison term that were set aside. It would, it would be the supervised release too, would it not? That's correct, Your Honor. But in this case, there are still valid convictions to which the term of supervised release was attached. Now, here, the supervised release was ordered in connection with the drug offenses, which That's correct. were not the offenses, the, the gun-related offense that was wrongfully Imposed. That's correct, Your Honor. There were, in fact, two drug offenses, each of which carried a mandatory term of supervised release of at least three years. And what has happened to this, uh, to uh, Mr. Johnson uh, since the Sixth Circuit decision? Has, has he been on supervised release or not? No, he had been on supervised release under the district court's decision mm -hmm. and served somewhat in excess of two years on supervised release. Mm -hmm. He was then Im released immediately then upon the court's decision. And the consequences of a reversal here would be that he would go back on for a period of — That's correct. He would still have approximately nine months more to spend on supervised release. He would, of course, have the opportunity to move under Section 3583E for a reduction or termination of that term. Would you oppose that motion? Uh, not knowing the particular I mean, circumstances this is of this defendant, no, um, <laughs> it's difficult to say. The government has, in a number of cases involving similar um, — Bailey defendants um, not opposed a motion for early termination. The Court of Appeals relied on another section of the same statute, Section um, 3624A, to hold that um, this statute is ambiguous. Uh, we disagree. Section 3624A says nothing about supervised release. 
much less does it suggest that a defendant is entitled to a remedy of uh, a credit against his term of supervised release uh, if he ends up spending uh, more time in prison than, in retrospect, he should have spent. Indeed, Section 3624A, which states simply that uh, the Bureau of Prisons should release, shall release a prisoner at the expiration of his term of imprisonment, is not even violated in this cir- circumstance where the Bureau of Prisons releases the defendant on the very day specified under the sentence imposed by the district court. What is the argument that you have to give credit for even periods of liberty erroneously granted, that that counts against the sentence if they let you out by mistake and then you get called back the time that you were out counts as part of your sentence, and the anomaly that you don't get credit for time wrongfully served in prison. It's questionable, Your Honor, whether the doctrine that you're referring to, the common law doctrine, has any continuing validity. Um, As Judge Posner noted in a 1994 opinion, it hasn't been uh, applied to a defendant's benefit in many years. Uh, We would suggest that the clear language of Section 3624E uh, supersedes the common law in this regard. Also, this doctrine was You could could argue that 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 rule is thoroughly in accord with the rule that you're arguing for. That that gives the government — uh, that deprives the government of, of incarceration time to which it is entitled, just as uh, the position you're arguing for def- deprives the defendant of freedom time to which he's entitled. So uh, maybe, maybe there's a certain equity in that, I, I guess. Well, the doctrine has been applied only in circumstances where the government is negligent or or at greater fault, certainly in these circumstances where a defendant has been held under a valid conviction that was correct under Sixth Circuit law until Bailey, um, it's difficult to find any fault on the part of the government similar to those in the constructive parole cases. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's comment that this statute has the punitive, the supervised relief is a form of punishment? There may be punitive aspects to it, Your Honor. Its principal it's purpose, as received by Congress, was not punitive. At least there is an element of punishment here. There may well be, yes. And what is that element? Simply the fact that he is required to report periodically or whatnot? Your Honor, that's part of it. That's not all that supervised release entails. He's deprived of certain liberties that uh, that ordinary citizens don't have. Well, he's required, for example, to maintain a job, to go to substance abuse counseling, um, not to leave the district without seeking permission from his probation officer or the court. To not carry Um, firearms? That's correct. What, What is the rehabilitative aspect of it? I mean, one part of the government's argument is that this is, this is for his benefit, to ease his transition back into society. Is there anything beyond what you have just described that helps him ease his way? Yes, for example, uh, one of the standard conditions of supervised release and one of those imposed in this case is that the defendant work regularly at gainful employment. The probation officer working with the defendant will put him in touch with potential employers or with job placement agencies and will monitor his performance on the job. Um, This provides a certain amount of assistance and discipline to uh, assist in his rehabilitation. Uh, Similarly, a condition — It's a lot like parole, then. It's quite similar in this aspect to parole. Parole was different in that it was not a separate term, a defendant's sentence. It was simply served at the end of a term of imprisonment. That's why this issue didn't come up during the parole era. 
If, if this defendant were to um, violate his terms of supervised release, what would be the maximum liability uh, that he would have for that violation? Um, conceivably, um, at least four years. And the period of um, to which a, a defendant can be sentenced to imprisonment for a violation of supervised release is set forth in the statute. Um, it's been held by several courts of appeals that um, uh, terms of imprisonment upon revocation of supervised release can run uh, consecutively, even if the terms of supervised release themselves run concurrently. So in this case, since there was supervised release imposed on the two drug counts, conceivably uh, uh, Mr. Johnson could be subject to four years. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons has, in fact, construed um, the crediting statute, um, 3585, to give a defendant um, whose supervised release has been uh, revoked credit um, against his subsequent sentence for any time that he erroneously spent in prison previously. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Ms. McDowell. Mr. Shad, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, the respondent does not argue that uh, it should, that the respondent should uh, have, that the government is entitled to its pound of flesh in this case. The problem with this case has always been that the government has always sought three pounds of flesh where it's only entitled to one. If you look at the procedural history of this case, uh, the, the Government argued for two consecutive 924C charges, which were later overturned by the Sixth Circuit en banc court. The original sentence in this case was 171 months imprisonment with the three-year supervised release. Um, Upon the Bailey case, we filed the 2255 motion and were able to overturn the other conviction, the 924C conviction in this case. But the, the government has always consistently sought in this particular case to obtain more than which they are entitled to. Uh, if I can address uh, uh, Justice O'Connor's question to the United States uh, with regards to the relief that the United States is seeking in this case, um, the request for relief in this case is somewhat vague in that the United States doesn't address how it is entitled to a particular kind of relief in this case. If you take the United States position that supervised release began to run uh, in May of 1996, uh, then in May of 1999 of this year, supervised release will have ended whether or not he was actually on supervised release or not. The, there is no statute which says that the, sta- su- the period of supervised release is told for the time in which the Court of Appeals case and the What is the date, May 1996? I'm going to be sure I follow you. In May of 1996, there was, there was a bond hearing, and uh, Judge Gilmore, uh, the United States District Court of the Eastern District of Michigan, at that point overturned the 924C conviction. He was released on that date, May 2nd, 1996. And it, the, the government's position, the United States' position, has been that supervised release began to run on that day. So if you take that starting date, and play that out for the entire three years, then even now the United States is not entitled to 
any relief in this case. Why does the United States say that he is not on supervised release now? How do we know that he's not on supervised release? Well, Justice Scalia, in fact, the the Sixth Circuit did overturn the portion of his uh, supervised release um, in its decision of uh, August of 1998. And the decision of the Sixth Circuit was transmitted up to the probation officer. And, in fact, he has not been uh, the probation officer has not been supervising him since August of 1998. And there's nothing in the statute that re- that requires uh, that suspension to be uh, uh, to be told uh, th- that requires the supervised release time to be told uh, by reason of that suspension. That's correct, Justice Scalia. And the and the government, uh, the United States, did not seek uh, to stay the Sixth Circuit's decision pending this court's decision. So, in fact, even even if this court were to decide that in, in, in cases under 3624E, the term of supervised release only begins to run on the day they're actually released from prison, uh, we would argue that it wouldn't make a difference in this particular defendant's case. But it would until, oh, you said it, it ran out in May 1999, is it? That's correct. That's correct, Justice. So, so but under, why do you, I mean, what are we arguing about? Isn't under 3583 the unusual uh, defendant who finds himself in your client's situation has a remedy. He goes back to the district court and he says, Judge, I would like you to end the supervised release uh, so it's only a year long, and during that year I'd like there to be no conditions at all. So, uh, and the judge has adequate power to do that, doesn't he? So what's the problem? And, and, and all judges are thoroughly reasonable and will come to the right decision, tender towards the defendant, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I, the answer to your question, Justice. It's possible not all judges are thoroughly reasonable. I agree with that. What, uh, what, what, uh, to answer your question, Justice yes. Breyer, even if there were no conditions of supervised release for that term of the year that, that this particular defendant would have to wait until supervised release was then terminated, uh, he still has the problem of if he, if he would commit another crime to the satisfaction of the probation officer, he then can be brought up for supervised release revocation and be given the entire three years of supervised release at any time during that one year. All right. So he has a special, that kind of special burden. And then let me ask you this question. Suppose a person is convicted of a crime, A, and he has two punishments, X months in prison and a $50,000 fine. Now suppose he's also convicted of crime B, and he serves prison in crime B. And unfortunately, that conviction was erroneous, so it's reversed after he receives some time. That's our basic situation. Not A, but B was reversed. All right, does the government now have to uh, give his money back for the fine on crime A? Well, Justice Breyer, in that situation, I don't know if if crimes A and B are necessarily related to each other. No, they're not related at all. Okay. as a good defense lawyer, I would I would argue that that they were entitled to a portion of the fine back. I would, so, I would so if he's fined solely on crime A, which has nothing to do with B, and it turns out that B was erroneous, not A, he has to give back the money on crime A. I I do not I do not believe the government uh, has to give it back. Yeah, I do not believe that I could find support for that under the law. All right, but I certainly agree I would, with you. Certainly, I, I would make that argument. I agree with you, I, and I think it'd be an <laughs> <laughs> all right. That being so, how does supervised release for crime A differ from the fine? Um, in, in, supervi- in the time spent — Or if you want to, say, take the present case. I mean, that's what I'm thinking okay. of. Okay. In, in, taking, in taking the present case, 
and applying it to those circumstances, we have a situation where unless this particular defendant gets credit off of his supervised release for uh, the time that he spent in, in prison, he has no basis to obtain relief for the time that he had spent in prison. You know, I, you see, my question is, I, I, if, if it doesn't affect part two of the punishment for the first crime, namely crime A, you know, why does it affect part two where the only difference is instead of a fine for crime A, it's supervised release for crime A? I do understand your question, Justice Breyer, and I don't know that I have an adequate answer for it. Mr. Shad, uh, if he's fined incorrectly for, for crime B, can he get the money back? Yes, yes, Justice Scalia. If he's incarcerated incorrectly for crime B, can he get the time back? No, Justice Scalia. So it seems fair to, to give him the time back by not putting him in for the additional five years on crime A. That's a somewhat different situation, isn't it? That's correct, Justice The only way to give him the five years out of his life back is not to have the, the incarcerated release credit uh, uh, told against him. Yes, Justice Scalia. And, and as a matter of fact, there, there is no other way in this particular case, returning to the facts of this particular defendant, there is no other way to provide him with some relief for the time that he has spent in, in prison. The, but one the, of the government's argument that supervised relief although it may have a punitive aspect, is primarily designed to have the person monitored during his transition back into the community. And indeed, I think the government says the seriousness of the crime is not a factor in the term of supervised release, but rather the characteristics of the defendant. Well, Justice Ginsburg, in, in fact, when imposing a term of supervised release under the guidelines, the court is to look at the severity of the offense. There's, there's classes of felonies that are, uh, there's A, B, C, and D type class felonies, and depending on the severity of the felony, that in turn uh, makes the minimum supervised release uh, term larger. So, in fact, the, the sentence itself, or the, the, the crime itself, does uh, have a bearing on supervised release. And although uh, the respondent would admit that there, that there are some rehabilitative, rehabilitative aspects of supervised release, um, that doesn't mean that the, the converse is not also true in that incarceration, although it's punitive in nature, does also have aspects of rehabilitation. In the Bureau of Prisons, a defendant can obtain his GED while he's incarcerated. He can obtain a trade. He can work in Unicor and obtain a trade that way, or he can go to a special, uh, specialized vocational school. He can take uh, classes such as uh, family parenting and different classes like that. So, in fact, incarceration is also rehabilitative in and of itself also. So the mere fact that supervised release is not solely punishment uh, does not mean that you cannot give credit one to the there's, other. There's the certainly case. a difference in degree, at least, isn't there, from the rehabilitative aspects of uh, supervised release as opposed to a prison? Yes, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. And, in fact, uh, in this case, I'm confident that the defendant would have certainly uh, wanted to uh, take the two and a half years and served it on supervised release rather than be wrongfully incarcerated in this case. Mr. Shad, the difficulty I have with your position is this. Uh, if, if I thought we were writing on a totally clean or unwritten slate here, I would say, yes, we ought to try to tinker with the 
with the mechanism of supervised release in, in, in order to give at least as much credit as can be given for what the government wrongfully exacted from him. But the slate isn't clean, and when I look at the supervised release scheme in the statute, I see that Congress, in effect, has said there are two ways you can tinker with it. Uh, you can reduce the supervised release term down to a year, uh, and you can, in fact, remove or eliminate some of the customary conditions of supervised release during the period in which it runs. And that seems to suggest to me that Congress is saying this is the only kind of tinkering you can do. If you find equitable grounds to do these things, you can do them. But equitable grounds do not give you a basis for doing anything more than this. So it sounds to me as though Congress has, in effect, circumscribed and intended to circumscribe uh, the, the court's uh, discretion here. Is, is there an answer to, to that problem that I have? Um, Justice Souter, in, in this particular case and, and with these particular facts, I, I would agree that, uh, that Congress has spoken in those partic- two particular areas. But, in, in fact, Congress presupposes when it, when, it, when it writes as to those issues, it presupposes both valid conviction and a valid term of supervised release. Um, the, if you look at 3624A and 3624E, both of those presuppose that there is a valid term of conviction and a valid term of supervised release. I would submit that Congress never considered, and, and in fact the Sixth Circuit but, but also agreed with this. But isn't it true that we do have a valid conviction and a valid term of supervised release? The, the, he's already served the time on the valid conviction, but we do have a valid conviction. As to as to the uh, yes as to the drug offenses uh, he does have a valid conviction but as to the 924c counts it was not a valid conviction when it was originally imposed by the by the sentencing court. But the supervised release term is not dependent entirely on the 924c counts, is it? No, no, Justice Stevens. Suppose he's released improperly. There's an administrative snafu in the prison, and he's released prematurely from the sentence that he's validly serving. Does the uh, supervised release time begin to run? While he's out, do they credit him for supervised release time? Yes. They do? Yes, they would, until the government would bring him into court and request, I guess, That he be reincarcerated. Yes. So if he's walking around free for a year because there's been an administrative mistake, and then they yank him back in to serve the rest of his his sentence, he would have had a year knocked off of his later supervised release time. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. Yes. Um, The the bottom line in this case is that the court, that the United States is reading 3624E and reading that sentence alone and, and states that the Congress was clearly unambiguous when it wrote 3624 uh, E. If you look at um, Petitioner's Appendix 26A, uh, where, it, where it puts uh, the entire 3624 E in, if you look at the last sentence of of 3624E, it states that no prisoner shall be released on supervision unless such petitioner prisoner agrees to adhere to an installment schedule not to exceed two years except in special circumstances to pay for any fine imposed for the offense committed by such prisoner. Under a little re- literal reading of that portion of 3624E, 
uh, a defendant would not be released by the Bureau of Prisons until it agreed to this until it agreed to this fine schedule, regardless of whether their uh, sentence of imprisonment had already run. And that, if <laughs> if we're going to read 3624E literally all the way through, then under that literal uh, portion, we have the same problem that Ms., that Justice Scalia talked about in a uh, person being wrongfully imprisoned just because the Bureau of Prisons didn't like them or whatever. We have the same exact situation, if you read that literally. Of course, that's not what Congress intended, and the cases that I've cited indicate that if Congress's intent is uh, contrary to what the plain language of the statute says, then, in fact, uh, this Court can read it to construe the statute to Congress's intent. Whereas, I, what, what do you think the situation is if he, if he says, heck no, I won't sign? Well, what is the prison official supposed to do? Well, Turn him loose anyway? Under, under a, little reader, a literal reading of 3624E, it, w- it would appear to me that he has to hold them until he agrees to sign, regardless of the prison right. term. Hold them until the supervised release uh, period is over. That's correct. In other well, words, if he refuses to sign, you convert his supervised release into an additional term of, of imprisonment. And, and that's Which seems pro- to me fair enough. Why is that an absurd result? I mean, the deal is we'll give you supervised release if, if you agree to this. If you don't want to agree to it, fine. We won't give you supervised release. We'll, we'll keep you right here. That seems to you very unjust. Yes, yes, Justice Scalia. It is unjust because it's not necessarily one of the terms of their supervised release. In, in well, but it says that. It yeah. says that. If, no prisoner shall be released. It seems to me what they're telling the prison official is if he doesn't agree to pay, uh, to pay the fine he owes, convert his supervised release time into additional imprisonment time. And in effect, what you would have under that circumstance is that you would have a Bureau of Prison official making the decision as to incarcerate the defendant for a longer period of time without any hearing, without any due process. It would just be that this determination was made, therefore we're holding him for the balance of the but, term. But uh, perfectly consistent with, with this uh, process set out in the sentence. He has not complied with something that the Congress has said he has to comply with for supervised release. I don't see any due process question there. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, when a, when a defendant is accused of violating terms of his supervised release once he is out, he then has a hearing before the uh, United States District Judge, and he can defend himself. He has the right to counsel, and only after a finding uh, that he is, in fact, uh, violated the terms of a supervised release, can he then be reincarcerated? And it's up to the judge, the sentencing judge, to not only find the term of super, find the revocation, but also find the new well, term. Very, very likely, if he felt that he had agreed to the installment schedule and the prison official was just being arbitrary and not releasing, he w- he would have an action for habeas corpus to the district court to tell him that he, he's no longer being properly incarcerated. But that doesn't go to whether Congress can exact that sort of a condition. You're saying if the prison official improperly uh, passes on the facts, he should have a chance to challenge it. Of course he does. But that, if the prison officer is right on the facts, uh, the guy should stay. Mr. Chief Justice, I'm, I'm submitting that, um, in fact, no uh, Congress did not intend for the result that the plain language of the statute intends. They didn't in that part of well, okay. 3624E. What, what, what's, what's the best talisman or in index for deciding what, what the intent of Congress was. What better than what the words they chose? 
Yes, Your Honor. You have to, but in order to look at uh, the Congress's intent, you not only have to look at the exact or the language that we're speaking of, but you have to look at the overall structure of the statute and the related statutes that are imposed at the same okay. time. Okay. Why, why, why is this inconsistent with the other provisions? The, the provision, the last sentence, that you say they couldn't possibly have meant literally? Well, because, it, because in, in any other circumstance, the, the defendant in a violation of a supervised release term is entitled to the full due process rights. This would be the only circumstance in all of uh, the United States Code in which a defendant would not be entitled to uh, the due process of going before the for the judge and having the right to counsel, this would be the only one if, if in fact, that was the case. I don't understand what, what the alternative that you think Congress had in mind is. If well, Congress didn't want them to keep the guy until he signs the agreement, which they say he must sign, what, was, what, is the, what are you supposed to do? Torture him until he, until he coughs up the agreement? Uh, what? No, no, Justice Scalia. I would submit, what is your alternative? How I would do you think that, that sentence ought to be played out? I would submit the guy says, heck no, I won't sign. I would submit that any Bureau of Prisons official is, even if they do not sign, is going to release them and then probably In violation of the law, which says no prisoner shall be released unless he agrees to adhere to, and he hasn't agreed to it. Yes. I believe that any Bureau of Prisons official. And that's your, that, that, that in your mind gives a more reasonable interpretation to the statute. Yes. Yes. Are you helped, are you helped by the second to last sentence in, in your view? Which does uh, conceive of the uh, of the proposition that there can be concurrent running, well, well, yes. uh, and and you would say that this is uh, not in connection with a conviction, so that sentence is inapplicable. Yes, Justice Kennedy. One of, one of the arguments that the United States has made is that no part that supervised release and detention are antonyms, and therefore they can never be run concurrently with each other. And you say and the statute itself acknowledges that possibility in the 30-day context 30 uh, when it is in connection with a, a, uh, a conviction, and you would have to say this is not in connection with a conviction. That, that's, that's correct. The excess time. That's correct. And with regards, one item that we haven't looked at is the, the, the how uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 3742 plays out and how uh, — in the case where a defendant is con- — where we're not looking at a retroactive application of Bailey, but we're looking at a guideline sentence that was imposed erroneously, uh, if a defendant receives a term of, let's say, three years imprisonment and a one-year term of supervised release, then if he — if that defendant does not get through the appellate process by the time the three years of imprisonment have occurred, then the, then the case is mooted and the defendant in that case is not entitled to any relief. Why, why is that so? Aren't there collateral consequences to a criminal conviction that would still entitle the defendant to appeal? Well, the question would be whether or not in that case uh, there is enough to obtain jurisdiction. The only collateral consequence that some of the cases that I've cited to talks about, there's, there's two consequences that they say are a result of that. One of those is the, um, the, the fact that supervised release can be credited against for the wrongful term of imprisonment. And then the second part of that is in the situation where uh, if a future crime is committed, that the length of this sentence could have an impact on the length of the future sentence. But um, then you're getting, if the only collateral consequence is that particular matter, the length of the sentence affecting 
a, the length of a future sentence that may occur somewhere down the road, then you're getting to the point where there might not be a case or controversy sufficient enough for a court of appeals to decide the matter. So that, that collateral consequence, which was the only one that's discussed, if that's the only collateral consequence that we're talking about, then I, I would have a question as to whether or not the Court of Appeals could even uh, have the case or whether it would be mooted at that point. Um, in, in, in the case where a defendant received a term of under a year, then conceivably that part of it wouldn't even make a difference. Uh, because it might not make any difference on his future sentence. So you have the situation where you have a defendant who's obtained a wrongful guidelines sentence and has no way to vindicate that wrongful sentence under 3742, which Congress clearly intended to be allowed to. As far as the guidelines are concerned, wasn't there a change made in response to whatever was the Court of Appeals' decision to say that you can't go back any further than time served? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, that was in response to the United States versus Blake case, which was one of the cases that we cited. And I would submit that that's further evidence that the Sentencing Commission believed that you could provide credit against supervised release. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the change in uh, the change in the sentencing guideline to take care of that particular problem. Why not? If they have uh, one ad precedent going the other way, they don't they didn't want to remove any doubt on this subject. That would be that would be the case if, in fact, that particular guideline was made retroactive, which it was not under 1B1.10. Mr. Shad, would would, would um, the apparent unfairness of this thing, at least I consider it apparently unfair, be uh, uh, remedied if we held that it would be a, an abuse of discretion for a judge not to uh, exercise his uh, option to remit the? Uh, Supervised release time. It, it, I mean, it is within his discretion, but couldn't we say it'd be an abuse in these circumstances not to? Is Justice Scalia referring to the 3583, the credit after the one-year term of the term, the early termination provision? Right. Um, well, the, the problem with that, Justice Scalia, is that you still get first one you have year. to serve a year. You still get one before you can even ask. Yeah. So you have that problem, and in, in this particular defendant's case, it would make a difference because he only had six months to go at the time that he was released if he would have gotten the full credit. So he would have had to serve an additional six months before he could, before even, he could even ask. And then right. we, still have abu- we still have the problem with the judge's discretion, and even if it's under abuse of discretion standard, by the time a particular defendant could get it up to the Court of Appeals, then we, he would more likely serve a lot of his term anyway. Well, on the other hand, if the government — uh, if, if a judge wrongfully allows him, the government will have a long time to get it up to the Court of Appeals. So that works both ways. That's, that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. If there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Shad. Uh, Ms. McDowell, you have 17 minutes remaining. <laughs> the only question I have, Ms. McDowell, is uh, how do you interpret in connection with a conviction in the second to last sentence? Do you, do you say that this that this sentence that was being served here was in connection with the conviction, the excess portion? Yes, it was. Ms. McDowell, how do you um, how would the government construe this situation, which came up in one of the hypotheticals? An individual is prematurely released; uh, it's a mistake. Uh, during the period of release, the, the individual uh, is on supervised release. Then the mistake is recognized. Uh, the prisoner is hauled back and reincarcerated to serve some remainder of time. 
Under those, and, and ultimately, of course, is released again. When the prisoner is released this time properly, is there a credit against the um, supervised release time for the period of supervised release between the two incarcerations? I don't believe that the situation has ever come up if the defendant was actually serving supervised release under the Yeah, yeah but he signed the form and they supervised his job and so on. They did. The, 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 everything was done. So, so he was actually being supervised during the period of the release. Would he get credit for it when he was released the second time? Uh, he might well, Your Honor, because um, under the word of, wording of the statute, his term of supervised release would have commenced upon his first release from prison. It then would have been told when he went back to prison uh, for the period that he was still spending there and then would uh, start up again once he was released. So well, I, that, I think that serves the, it would be construed that way to give yeah. him credit. That serves the, the, the literal terms of the statute, which is your argument, but it does sort of undercut the theory that we need to be literal about the terms of the, of the statute because the prisoner, in effect, is in need of this supervision for whatever period of time is prescribed. Uh, and, and so it would seem that the literal interpretation and the rationale for being literal seem to be at odds with each other in that situation. Well, the district court would still have the opportunity, if it appeared necessary, to extend the defendant's term of supervised release if it appeared necessary to serve the deterrence and rehabilitation purposes uh, beyond the term that was initially imposed, um, unless it was already and, and hence would, maximum. And hence would likewise then have discretion, I presume, on your theory, not to give any credit at all. Uh, effectively not to do that by lengthening a term of supervised release. However, if it was a case where there was a a maximum term of supervised release that the defendant could serve. Um, if he had served, say, one year before he went back into prison, uh, there might be a, a limit beyond which the district court couldn't go in extending the period. But basically, I guess your argument is no system is perfect, but we're going to get closer to what Congress intended if we just be literal about this. That's, that's what it boils down to. That's correct, Your Honor. Of course, your, your answer really doesn't, doesn't make everything work out okay. If, if he is subject to uh, parole on another conviction, maybe even from another sovereign on a state conviction, the statute provides that his federal supervised release shall run concurrently with that other parole or supervised release, right? That's correct. So suppose he has two years parole on a state conviction that he has to serve after he's done his federal, federal sentence. Okay. He also has a two-year federal supervised release uh, uh, sentence. They let him out early. He serves his two years federal supervised release, which he would normally have been serving concurrently with his, his state parole for two years, right? Right. Okay. You find out the mistake. You bring him back in. He's going to have to serve another two years of supervised release, isn't he? Or, or parole. He'll have to serve his state parole even though – you see what I mean? That would be a matter of state. He will have lost two years of, uh, of freedom, in effect. Whether he would still have to spend the, the term of state parole or not would be a, a matter of state, state law that a state judge might decide yeah. that he would not have to serve in those circumstances. May, the, uh, may I ask you kind of one, just ask you to comment on one thing. One of the things that is troubling all of us, I think, is the extent to which the supervised release is really the functional equivalent of what the time he's already served or it's in its punitive aspects. And one of the provisions of the uh, 
statute that provides what goes into the supervised release is, an, is a kind of a catch-all provision that the judge can impose any other con- condition it considers to be appropriate. Is there is that, that almost is that as unlimited in your view as it sounds? I mean, could the judge require him to report every three days instead of every thirty days, and so forth and so on? Uh, yes, Your Honor, if the judge felt that that was necessary to serve the purposes of supervised release. In addition to the statute, the sentencing guidelines uh, set forth the standard conditions of supervised release that should be imposed in most cases, and that provides a little more clarity to what's in the statute. Do the standard conditions inclo- include a consent to uh, warrantless searches and that sort of thing? Essentially, it's a, a consent that the um, probation officer may visit the defendant's home and uh, seize whatever he happens to find. Unannounced visits and that sort of thing. That's correct. Uh, On the point that a term of imprisonment may serve some of the same rehabilitative purposes as supervised release, that may be true, but supervised release is indeed different because the defendant is living in the community. It's only then that he can be expected to maintain a regular job to receive the outpatient drug counseling that he may need to meet his child support and other family obligations. It's one thing, for example, for a defendant to remain drug or alcohol-free when he's in prison, where drugs um, are not available at all or or available only um, um, in rare circumstances and where he is under constant and pervasive supervision. It's quite another matter for the defendant to avoid use of drugs and alcohol when he's back in the community, subject to the same pressures and influences and temptations that got him into trouble in the first place. That's one of the many reasons why supervised release is different and why it is necessary as a rehabilitative measure. On the point that Mr. Shad raised about the possible mooting of this case, the Court of Appeals held that the defendant's term of supervised release had terminated upon the issuance of the Court of Appeals' decision. At that point, he still had approximately nine months to serve on supervised release. Given the Court of Appeals' opinion, it would be um, incorrect to assume that the defendant was still continuing in some manner to serve his term of supervised release, albeit without any sort of supervision by the probation office. Um, In terms of uh, holding um, a defendant if he fails to uh, agree to the payment uh, to a fine schedule, it's our understanding that the Bureau of Prisons indeed will hold defendants in those circumstances for the period of supervised release if Mm. they don't agree to a fine schedule. Instead of torturing them, I'm glad to hear that. I I, I thought they'd probably do that. In terms of Mr. Shad's point on uh, the necessity for accrediting rule in order to preserve appeals, Congress, as we pointed out in our reply brief, has dealt with that problem much more directly in 18 U.S.C. 3143, which uh, provides for a defendant to be um, uh, remain on release status pending his appeal if it appears that otherwise his sentence could expire before his uh, appeal is decided. That, of course, is available only in particular circumstances where the defendant is not a threat or a risk of flight and where he has some likelihood of prevailing on his appeal. Uh, finally, Justice Scalia had um, inquired whether an abusive, it might be held to be an abuse of discretion if uh, a district court refuses to release a defendant in these circumstances after one year. Uh, the, or, the statutory language doesn't seem to allow that sort of rule because it requires the district court to consider not only the interests of justice but also the conduct of the defendant. And if the defendant's conduct does not 
warrant um, the elimination of all supervised release at that time, um, it would be inappropriate to release him. The statute requires that the district court take into account a number of factors in deciding a motion under 3583E1. That includes um, not only the interest of justice, but also the protection of the community and the defendant's continuing rehabilitation needs. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McDowell. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.